All right, perfect. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. I am here with <laughs> I'm here with Nix, Logan, Garris, and Simone. Welcome back. So happy to have you, uh, Esther and Adrian Martel. Um, we are excited to talk about. <laughs> Is there something funny? <laughs> I don't. I don't get the joke. <laughs> So clear, clearly, we, this was Adrian's idea. Clearly. Yes, of course, yes. of course. So we're very excited to talk about police because we think they're great. But aside from that, the things that have been happening in this country have made you know a lot of prominent thought leaders, policymakers want to rethink what it means to be a police officer and how police officers interact with the community at large. I, for one, am very excited because I feel like. You know, we've been having these conversations maybe like for a couple of years uh, every now and then, but now it's really been at the uh, forefront of the discussion. But before we get into that, I want to ask Garrison and Simone, we're glad you guys are back. How have things have been in the last week? It's been crazy. The last couple, last week, I guess, particularly has been kind of crazy. Um, you know, praying through health challenges of a family member and all of that and, and really trying to you know work through that. Um, and then actually, I'll come back to this a little bit later on. I'm sure Simone, Simone has thoughts on it as well. But like we were actually involved in, the, in an active shooter situation this past week as well, which is kind of crazy. One of the more interesting things that's happened in my life. For sure. Um, so just a crazy little week, but but we're happy. It's Tuesday. Happy to be back with you guys on the show. Yeah. Very good. Cannot wait to hear more about the bullet holes. Uh, Nick, how how has your your past week been? Um, yeah, please tell us. Yeah, hey, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I want to just point out real quick, I was – I was watching Garrison's Twitter feed during that little fiasco, and that dude was so that dude was something like a CNN reporter. Like people, people were asking for like locations. Can you get yo? I know somebody in 40G. Can you? I was screaming out, and this dude was really out here responding, and people were like thankful. It was interesting. <laughs> like social media is crazy, bro. I was just like crazy. It's crazy. I know it was probably crazy for y'all, but that was at least a well-needed break from the other crap we've been seeing on social media. <laughs> for sure. That, that joint was amusing for me from, I was from like, afar. How is that a good break for them? That sounded very no, true. That's why yeah, I said not for them, but like not thousands of miles away, it was pretty entertaining. And they said that they were okay. So I figured that it was good. Um, thousands <laughs> might be overstating it, but anyways. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, you know, just... Just out here um, in Berrien, went to uh, a march on on Sunday in Berrien Springs. It was pretty crazy, pretty moving. Over a thousand people pulled up, which was mm. way more than I expected would be there. We were thinking a couple hundred. Um, and so, yeah, it was just like, you know, of course, I've lived in this community for a while, uh, uh, you know, I, I can be labeled a Barian product, if you will, you know, <laughs> and so Barian stand up, man. We people pulled up and it was moving to see, particularly as a black person, you know, having some formative years in this community. 
Um, definitely never expected to see something like that for sure. Um, and the fact that it was able to start on our campus and end on our campus was cool too. A lot of employees and students, of course, pulled up. So yeah, that was helpful after a couple of really tough weeks. It was cathartic. And then also, okay, shout out to uh, to my pops. Some of you may have seen I posted him. He wasn't on the schedule to speak, but some of you know my father that when he wants to say something, he just kind of like Absolutely. pulls, he just kind of pulls up and like, you know, it is what it is. Like, he just going to talk. Thankfully he was concise, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. It was pretty moving to, to experience it through his eyes as well. Having seen all he's seen, not just in his life, but in his community and to be able to have that moment was quite meaningful. So. Yeah, it's been it's it was it's been a good week, and I'm kind of feeding off that energy into today. So, this is like I think I'm breaking the I'm terrible streak. Yeah, that's been like the first ten episodes, right? So, I'm better. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Um, I did get to see some of the photos from the protest, and it looked really inspiring. Especially, you know, Andrews. You know, people have always have a little bit to say about Andrews dealing with social justice in these ways. So it's super great, Mike, that you're there able to really kind of push these initiatives forward. I definitely want to appreciate you uh, in that regard. So, Logan, um, you know, I love the hair. <laughs> you look really, I, I got to say, you look really peaceful. Please share some of this piece with me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's been a solid week. Um, I've pretty much been protesting most days, uh, depending. There's a lot. There's probably 10 to 15 or so you can go to in the Bay Area on any given day. Um, and so, you know, spinning out. Now, last Wednesday was kind of the big day where San Francisco had a large one and then um, Oakland as well. We decided to go to San Francisco because that was one that was really advertised. There's probably about 20,000 people there, which is pretty cool to be a part of. But then, like, social media hit. And I live really close to Oakland. It's it's literally five minutes away. Um, and we found out that like the one in Oakland was like, just like the culture of Oakland came out. Like the Warriors players were all there. Um, they did a after curfew lock-in where they sat in the streets and the police didn't even show up to it. Like they just said, whatever they're gonna do. So that was kind of, it was kind of cool that it happened kind of throughout the Bay Area and then throughout the whole United States it seemed pretty, pretty active there. Um, and so that it's been fun. It's been interesting to see going to, I've probably been to maybe 15 or so protests so far and to see the different ones and different groups, how they organize differently and how some are a little more effective maybe of getting the coverage has been kind of interesting to kind of watch and, and see. And honestly, the one takeaway I've noticed is that when white people talk, they are concerned. When black people talk, they are in a matter of life and death and fear. And so just as I as I sit there, I encourage my white audience to give those microphones to the people that are seeing this more as a fear and a life and death situation rather than your just simple concern. Um, because those are the people that are actually going to lead this, this movement further. Be there, be a body, be present, do the chance, but don't think that your privilege is going to portray the necessary um, amount of non-tolerance that you're going to get from you know black and brown bodies with microphones so yeah but it, overall it's been it's been solid excellent great to hear major and esther i understand you guys are still packing um how's that transition going for you guys yeah 
we haven't we haven't packed anything. What have you been doing this whole time? Chilling. <laughs> Walk. We've cooked with each other a few times, so that, yeah. that was pretty fun. Okay. Oh yes. So we're jumping the broom um, when we do our our smaller. So I, I cannot take any credit at all. <laughs> Esther is the creative, uh, artsy person in the relationship, and no, she, we knew she did a phenomenal. Hey man, she did a phenomenal <laughs> job. Um, but honestly, y'all, I I just gotta be honest. It's just been fun to not be long distant anymore. It's for the birds. It's trash. Um, and it is good to be around her a lot more consistent than a month or two months. So, oh yes, yes, amen, amen. amen. That's great. Well, glad to hear. Glad you guys are gonna be jumping the broom uh, very soon. And uh, let's get started. Let's talk about police because that's really yeah. Just let's meet, let's meet ourselves. Yeah. Hey, let's but, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> they're, all, they're always watching. <laughs> Anyways, let's talk about the police guys. And I want <laughs> actually before we move to our topic, uh, just a few things. Thank you to everyone that has joined us. Um, shout out to Mark uh, Moreno, Gian Harry, Donnell, live from NY. Hashtag Danielle. Danielle Bernard is not with us today. She's actually moving. Uh, she got a new job, so congratulations to her. Please pray for her so she can move safely. Um, but she's joining us online, and thank you, Javon Hines, for joining us too. Uh, we are streaming on Facebook and also on YouTube, so feel free to watch us from those two platforms. It'll be weird if you watch both at the same time. You can just choose one. And again, we are also on Instagram, so please feel free to follow us on that for updates. So, police. Um, there have been a lot of uh, talk, and, and, and sorry, please share this video too so more people can join into the conversation, um, but there has been a lot of talk in how we should shift what police do, especially with the death of more black and brown people by the hands of police. The conversation thankfully has moved to not just reform, but some people are really calling for a complete overhaul, a complete redefining of what it means to have police serve a community. So Adrian is a person I've been able to talk to uh, about this and he's been able to share a lot of good resources. So I would love for him to really kind of help us understand the difference, the difference between reforming the police, defunding the police or abolishing the police. Uh, there have been a lot of talk about these three different ways of moving forward, but they're different. And we want to make sure we set the table um, and make sure, you know, those things are clearly defined. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we have three different words, as Jordan stated, or four, depending on how you kind of look at the nuance between these two. Um, the first one is reform. Now, um, Interestingly enough, there are some similarities between most of these definitions, but I think reform kind of in some way stands in its own category because uh, what people who are calling for reform uh, to kind of summarize what they're asking for is for this system to fix itself. 
to use the resources, to use the people, to use the, the governmental system that we have in place to in some ways edify uh, within itself. So uh, police training, we'll use that as an example, less time focusing on the, the violent nature of the job and perhaps providing more hours on the social work side of the job. Because as we all know, policing um, is very people-based. You're interacting with a lot of different people. Um, but interestingly enough, um, what we've seen, what we've read, what we've listened to from podcasts or articles, or we've read different books, reform might actually cost America more money um, because it would require new hires, it would require new jobs, new salaries, new benefits, it would require to add additional resources. Um, and I think what I would say, and you guys can perhaps confirm or add in what people, uh, for many progressives, I would say, they're not favor favorable of this particular method is because um, it hasn't worked. You know, we've, we've tried to reform from the inside, um, but the reality is, officers lack the incentive to change themselves um, from what we've seen uh, throughout our, our country's history. And so that would probably lead us into the second one, which is defund. And I would say might be the, the most popular right now, um, primarily because uh, from the most articulate people that we've heard, they do a great job of breaking it down to focus on uh, specific areas where we can now bring those new funds to social programs, health, housing, education, and essentially the root of what defunding is saying is we are not fully asking for the complete uh, removal of police and living in a state of anarchy or purge-like society. But what we are saying is we believe that we through, through uh, studies, we believe that investing in people makes our community safer than investing in police. And as we've seen in many black and brown communities, in many low income communities, uh, over police does not lead to safety. That every statistic shows us that's not exactly the route that would contribute to any benefits whatsoever. And so, we have uh, what I would say is a, a two-parter here. There's one that deals with dismantling, and then there's one that deals with abolishing, in which I would say semantically there, there's some nuance, but for the most part, there's some similarity there. And what this essentially calls for is for Americans to look through the history of our country and to see uh, how policing started how a hierarchy among civilians was started from immigrants to black and brown people to low income people um, to, to uh, slave patrols and how it continued to be used for political purposes and how for the most part, when we look through our history, the, the primary purpose for police is to violently control the poor in our country. Um, very rarely do we see police attacks happening in mid to high income areas. And so um, when we take all of the history that's done and we'll try to provide all the resources that we use to kind of gain some knowledge on this topic for the people that are viewing. But when we take all of this into consideration, 
the people that are in favor for abolishing or dismantling, they realize that a system that was created on violence and racism cannot fix itself. Therefore, what we're asking is to uh, remove this system and replacing it with something else, giving it a fresh start, something that can have more insight on um, more more responsibility for for uh, community members to have insight on on violent attacks, so that there's more accountability. And what I thought was also interesting is they do recognize that there has to be some training that comes into handling the violent crimes in our country. And so what we're seeing is a lot of conversations on what that can look like um, so that we can still have a sense of, of quote unquote justice for people that are victims of violent, heinous crimes, while also recognizing that um, the systems and the process that we've been trying to use since the, essentially, uh, since black people came to our country, um, it just doesn't work. It is not something that brings forth the, um, the, the results that we're looking for when it comes to making places safer. Um, and we've seen places like Minneapolis start to strongly look at what does it look like when we can give a bit more responsibility and accountability on people um, while recognizing that um, the violence that comes with police due to the history and how it has been politically used uh, is something that just cannot happen any longer. We don't trust them to fix themselves. We need to just tear it down. Um, and I, I think that would probably give um, these three or slash four examples of what this all means. And um, I think it, it's definitely interesting to see this come to light. But um, yeah, y'all, I want to hear from you guys. Um, I know we've been we've been wanting to talk about this topic for a while. And as more politicians are presenting policy, um, I think we have the chance to make something um, really uh, possible happen here. And yeah, so I want to hear from you all. What, where are you guys kind of land? How are you viewing this? Um, where do you feel your emotions kind of leaning toward and why? And of course, for the viewers, um, send in your questions. Love to hear from you guys. Also ask as many questions as difficult as you may have. We want to hear from you all also. Okay, so you say abolish the police. I, I need that. That's the one definition I need. Uh, just one more time. Does that mean a, a police? I know defund doesn't mean a police-free society. Of course, reform right. doesn't mean it. But does abolish mean a police-free society? And police as we know it, free. Right. So I, I'm reading an article from from NBC. What they are defining abolish they say instead for those who call for police abolition they want to see an end of policing long term while still addressing community needs and i think they're leaving it somewhat open but what it does sound like the the difference between um the abolition versus the defunding is that uh the the reliance on police I think would look vastly different between the two um, over, over a span of time. Yeah. Right. The end goals are different, it sounds like. Yeah, right. 
Right. And it, it, yeah. lo- it looks like from abolishing really calls, I would say, not to use the word extreme, but abolishing is really the most involved. It's essentially saying we need to tear everything down, like what Adrian was saying. We need to rethink what it means to police and we need to give people the resources that they need so we don't need to use the same tactics that we use in the past. Right. And to just add on to what Jordan's saying here with abolishing, the reason why they're using that term is because policing is violent that we see that throughout our country's history and what they're saying is is there another form that we can create that can bring protection to our uh people without our people experiencing violence which has been associated with the police force i read a definition on abolish within some of these websites uh, on that we were sharing and it said abolish is those measures that reduce the power of an oppressive system while illuminating the system's inability to solve the crisis it creates. Mm. And so I take from that, um, abolish doesn't necessarily mean completely destroy the entire police and public safety, but it does take the power away from them to keep being oppressive. And so that would mean the police force, as we know it would be different. Um, Maybe we would even call them something different. Public safety would still still exist. But yes, the chief having this authority to ensure that he can protect his own or she can protect their own um that way would be done away with as we kind of see it and police's ability to kind of control how a community publicly serves is um yeah going to be within that because i've seen a lot of pushback on that especially online from some maybe people would say like uh, far you know in one way or the other and they say please don't confuse our movement abolish means abolish like we want to abolish this let's not if you want to defund and then empower that's typically the the way i look at that defund empower another group so take money from the police department say you're no longer taking calls for homeless people we are empowering another group that's going to do that that is a defund and an empower another group that is not an abolishment of the police department they are saying please know that we do want to abolish some of these police departments. And so, yeah, like, uh, the, but the conversation is important. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in. I, I mean, I think there is a fundamental, like, there's a gap between what the words are and like what people mean. And like, yeah. I feel like that really, we need to close, people need to close that gap somehow. I get like abolition is actually the clearest of the three in many, I guess reform, but defund is the one that I think is most popular. Right. In, in many ways, there feels like a, a even abolition kind of there's a gap between what they mean and what and how that word meets the person who he at least for me as a person, how I hear it. And I think that I, I feel like that needs to be acknowledged that like maybe we're not being or, you know, those who are advocating for these positions aren't being as clear when they use these words. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's good, G. And, and I'll jump in real quick here because um, w- what I think is starting to happen is that um, and I'll talk a little bit about a can't wait. But even before getting into the eight that they had originally suggested, if you look at their website now, they're kind of shifting in their messaging to saying that they actually do agree in this tiered plan towards abolition is what they're saying. And so um, the way their their campaign zero is framing it on their website now is that a can't wait is a campaign to bring immediate change to police departments. So they're saying that if police departments do 
these eight things. And what those eight things are is ban chokeholds or strangleholds, uh, require de-escalation, require warning before shooting, uh, requires exhaust exhausting all alternatives before shooting, a duty to intervene, that's uh, by an officer to intervene to stop excessive force. So like in the George Floyd situation, one of the other three officers having the duty to prevent Derek Chauvin from, from killing him, ban shooting and moving vehicles, require use of force continuum, which um, which restricts the most severe types of force to the most extreme situations. And then lastly, requiring comprehensive reporting so that every police involved shooting would be reported would mm -hmm. be the would be the goal there. And so those things are all, I guess, somewhat straightforward. And they've said that if if a department do, does those things in totality, that I guess that they would uh, lessen uh, police killings by 72 percent. That's the claim that they make. And of course, eight to abolition, you know, which someone else can maybe go into a bit more, has really come out strong and said, well, we're debunking the, the reality of that and all those claims. And so now it's getting murky because even above those eight key plans, um, they have, they can't wait, it's kind of shifted to now immediate harm reduction, comprehensive community safety, and then lastly, abolition. And so involved in their uh, de demilitarization, divest from police, invest in community, fund community safety, fully defund police. And so like, it's all kind of getting mixed up now. And so I think that ultimately what it seems to me is that eight can't wait because that was sort of a pre-existing initiative that they had kind of been working on for a while that launched. And of course, President Obama threw his weight behind it as well. And those were maybe seen as they kind of feel more like reform policies to me, to be honest, because um, it doesn't even mention defunding or even things like ending qualified immunity or anything like that. It's just more what are measures we want them to take now to make things safer. Um, but now I think we are starting to see a lot of um, a, a joining voice around this idea of abolition eventually. And the question is, how do you get there? I guess is what they're working on now and what replaces it, which has to be a conversation because um, they've talked about alternative community models to what we would think are policing uh, situations now, but, but that would need to be a bit more clear as well as this moves forward. Yeah. I mean, it really makes me kind of think, you know, like I think when, when I, when someone hears this, uh, you know, obviously we've all done a little bit more research, but when someone hears these things defund or abolish, particularly, I think reform is a fairly palatable measure. It, everyone like, you know, reform just kind of sounds like, okay, I can, I can digest that. But when you hear ab abolition or you hear defund, I think the very first thought or the image that comes into a person's mind is like, when I pick up the phone and call 911 for my emergency, what's going to happen, right? And if we can kind of have a conversation around, I mean, maybe not here, but I think it's important to have a conversation around the fact that when you pick up the phone and you call the, you know, 911, that person on the other line has hopefully a protocol or a list of prompts that helps them determine which service to call for you. And currently it's like police, you know, like every single time. And obviously that's not helpful. Police are escalating situations because they're trained as, you know, it's been said many times, uh, just saw 
something from John Oliver where he talks about the training makes everything, you know, they're trained to be predators and right. therefore everything looks like prey. And so, you know, like you said, Adrian, calling a social worker for a situation that doesn't necessarily need a cop would very likely lessen the harm that police are doing in society. And at the same time, I can acknowledge that while a social worker might be necessary for, say, a drug addict or maybe a, a, a homeless person that's disrupting something, um, it, it, would, it, it could escalate in a way that might harm someone or, or put someone at risk. And, and I think in the back of people's minds, or maybe even the forefront of their minds, they're thinking like, why wouldn't I want an armed officer or someone there to protect me yeah. in a situation like that, even though that situation would probably be best handled from an interpersonal perspective by a social worker. Yeah, and to just kind of piggyback off of what um, Garrison was saying here, I think as we've learned more about the everyday life of police, um, what we heard, what I believe was from a police chief in Dallas a few years ago, prior to all of these riots, what he basically came out and said at the pulpit was police are asked to do too much they're asked to handle high schools. They're asked to handle be mentally ill. They're asked to be social workers. They're asked to take care of the homeless. And by the way our system is designed, they have only two options. They either result to violence or they throw someone in jail. Those are essentially the only two outcomes that we tend to see. But as you will hear from officers, they're saying, I am not equipped to handle a situation with someone that is mentally ill. You, you need someone who has training how to use the right language, how to use the right posture, how to de-escalate that situation. But I've spent 129 hours how to deal with things violently. So I, I'm not equipped for it. Trevor Noah gave a, gave a great point and in a very humorous way. And I was talking to Esther about it where he talked about like in South Africa, you know, when you, you know, in comparison to America, you've got people calling the cops when there's like a cat in the tree. And he right. was like, if you do that in South Africa, like you'll be left with silence for a minute and they'll say, can I help you? It's like, what what are you calling us for? Why, why do you need us to solve this minuscule problem? And what we've kind of seen throughout our country where you have seen a narrative that does get pushed um, in a very complicated way, where is if you remove the 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 authority of the police, we would be left in in utter chaos. In fact, you have even heard threats from officers to say, um, if we were to pull back, right, and you try to call nine one one and we don't answer, tough luck, right? So I think what we also need to perhaps look into this conversation is, I think due to our nationalism in America, we've given too much authority to our officers. And I think it has gotten to the place where that has become their bargaining chip when this conversation comes up. If the hint of removing some authority is placed in, uh, there is a threatening that comes in that says, if you do that and you call 911, um, we're not gonna pick up. Underneath it all, there is a subtle tone that's suggesting um, they know how much power they have as, as police officers and I think what, what we've seen is um, 
that is part of why people are concerned that simply reforming, adjusting, uh, does not give perhaps the incentive for police to change. When they take that badge off and they go home, many of them will probably go back to watching Fox News, digesting Donald Trump. They're, they're Republicans, they're conservatives, uh, most a lot of them are. And so when they are sitting through these social work trainings, when they're sitting through these implicit bias trainings, um, they're going to see this as like, oh, here's this this like liberal leftist agenda kind of being stuffed down my throat. And that, I think, is part of the urgency that you sense from people when they say we need to remove too much power, because I don't know if police officers as individual people will feel the convictions that we feel to to be better. Yeah, I do think that police are treated like our social triage. So like everything that's a social issue is kind of like call the police. Like let's let's see if they can figure the situation out. And I think that that adds a certain level of incompetence to the way that our society deals with mm -hmm. issues because they're not I mean, like you said, like I mean, they're trained to show up to a situation evaluate the situation and make an arrest if appropriate, right? Um, and very seldom, in fact, there's some jurisdictions where they're ordered to make an arrest where an arrest can be like, you know, kind of finessed for lack of a better word. And that's that um, mentality is, is not the right mentality to apply to say a mental health scenario or, um, you know, even you mentioned homeless people that maybe, having a different a set of issues that could be addressed in a different way. Um, and so I think that we add, we, we really need to look at, and I, I told Garrison this earlier, you know, the way that we're discussing reform, to be honest with you, I think if we actually reformed, it would be the first time in history, I think that we've actually ever done that because mm -hmm. there's no like federal sweeping laws that say, hey, this is how we're policing in America. You know, they're all kind of just very specific to jurisdictions. And honestly, we haven't created a culture of accountability and we haven't created the resources that we need to around social accountability. Like, how are we going to deal with our society's issues? We're constantly begging um, in the court system and outside of the court system for men more mental health attention, which we know is, you know, the start of a lot of even our criminal issues. And so it's just kind of a challenging situation that we found ourselves in. And I think that's where we get to the defunding and the abolishing right. because it just seems like it can't work. But I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I don't even think that we've done a very good job of even trying wholeheartedly to throw our weight at even reforming. I think we've done a terrible, mm -hmm. terrible, terrible job. And it's been like low level at best. Didn't you mention, uh, uh, you said something to me earlier about Chattanooga and I. Yeah, Chattanooga just adopted or they just announced a duty to intervene, which is one of the can't, um, eight can't wait, you know, happens to be one of those. And I think that that's a phenomenal way of accountability. I mean, all a lot of officers have this mentality of like, well, it's just a bad apple. Well, if it's a bad apple and four of you are there, you know, George Floyd, right? Like then the... Uh, the accountability there would have outweighed the actions of Officer Chauvin. Um, and I think that that's really great. And it's great to see, you know, shout out to Chattanooga Police Departments. They haven't explicitly said what the disciplinary action will be. And that is very important. But they have stated that they um, are imp imposing um, a duty to intervene. So that's great.
from what I understand, as I talk to cops, um, I have a couple of friends that have reached out to me through these conversations. And uh, it seems like the smaller police departments are much better at being able to do this, to kind of know what their community wants and needs. Like, you know, Chattanooga probably has a couple hundred to a few hundred police officers. Um, and then it gets really, I guess, from the way people talk, it gets really tough when these police departments become thousands, you know. Um, there's just so many cops that you're trying to find bad apples when you can't even get enough people to hire because yeah. And so when we talk about defunding, that's when it's so important. Like LA, we, we can talk about abolishment and defunding properly because two major cities just did it. Minneapolis is voting with their city council. And I listened to a podcast today that said they actually have full authority to remove all funding to the police department in in Minneapolis. So that's like a really important step. And LA, they, I mean, it's only 5%, but they cut up to $150 million. Um, and if that is defunded and empowered, you're going to be able to say like, police officers that aren't trained to do some of these things can't do these things. Like there's just no way around that conversation. Um, but in reality, even when we start to talk about the switch to community, like racism, I mean, Trayvon Martin died because the guy thought he was a community cop. Like, yeah. I mean, we, I don't know what the answer is. Cause like I'm, I, I carry a sign to protest that says black lives matter on one side and abolish replace on the other side. Um, and I hold that up proudly. I believe in that. I believe abolishing these higher up authority because I mean, I'll speak to everything. I think administrative changes are going to be the things that change cultures. But at the same time, I really don't know what we're gonna do when we start to talk about maybe empowering communities um and more community policing when i would say community members are probably more racist than cops community members have way less interactions with black and brown people in our country and you know i think there's a lot of bad apples in the cop but there's also a lot of cops that their administration trains them to be bad apples they give them they empower them when they make a bad apple mistake they keep their job when they make a bad apple move they get a slap on the wrist you know some of those um, abolishment things are talking about we should really push into firing police. Um, but I still like, I, I just, that's where I rack my brain is I'm like, I still see these people because I, I heard a really good quote yesterday that I'm gonna read um, uh, uh, about a guy. He said, the, the police is the arm and hammer of the capitalistic class. The mm -hmm. police inform the laws of the elites. And uh, I think that's really true. I think protecting and serving can only happen in this country if if our community trusts and the one thing i hear from black and brown communities they don't trust police so why would they want those police in their neighborhoods if they can't even have a conversation because all they feel is that those cops are there to make sure that white people feel essentially safe and uh yeah i don't know i just kind of i'm just kind of spraying some of my thoughts because it kind of racks my brain on how to solve that cultural it's still a big systemic problem, but it's a cultural education issue that I think we've really failed our society in by basically not teaching America that black and brown people have contributed amazing things to our society. And instead we've just told them that they've contributed negative things to our society. They've only brought crime and pain and, and you know lower education rates and all these things. That's all they've done instead of saying like, no, actually, actually they've, they've made our society the reason that they're one of the most advanced in the history of the world. They're the reason because they fought for the justice of themselves. And then we've seen, you know, that justice played out in ways, not enough, but in, in ways, I don't know, but.
Yeah, I um I think the reason why everybody's racking their brain and like coming up against a wall in this conversation is I think that as a society as a whole, we're being pushed to think um outside of anything that we've ever known. Um like in the history of our country. Like I think this idea of handling everything punitively and that the way that you run and order a society and make sure that it runs safely and punitively is, is or sorry, runs safely is through punitive measures is something that like is so ingrained in American culture that we don't know anything outside of it. And it's also, I think, uh, something that's very, um, it's part of white dominant culture, which is like what America is founded on. And I think like this idea that like without that risk, without that risk of a consequence, like all hell will break loose is founded in like just, just that idea that like we don't know anything outside of that. And you see that at all levels, like you see it in schools, like all, like the way that we respond, the way that we think we need to keep people in check to make sure that they're following the rules is that we have to have, they need to be afraid of a consequence. Mm. But like the more you learn, like I'm a teacher, so I think I'm thinking about it this way, but like the more you learn about like children and human development and that kind of thing, the more you realize like that's not actually the best way to motivate people to do things. Like you don't want to run your classroom punitively. Like that's not the best way. Like what the best way to make sure people stay in line is through community building and understanding each other and appealing to people's like humanity. But that's like not white dominant culture. Like that's not how we think. And so when we think about like our overall country, the idea of taking away this punitive power, especially for people who have always felt um, protected by that yeah. is super scary. They're afraid because they think like, oh, so without the risk of what cops have always done to us, without the risk of, you know, being arrested, being harmed, being put in prison, without all of these um, risks, like nobody will follow the rules, like all hell will break loose, like it's over. But that's not the truth about most crime. Like most crime is not people just being like, I just feel like breaking the law today. I could, I just want to do it. Like that's not, right. that's not what it is. And that's true at all levels of human behavior. For the vast majority of people, you do things for an underlying reason. In a classroom, if a child is acting out and they're doing something insane, mm -hmm. there is usually an underlying reason, usually a need that is not being met. And the way to prevent that behavior is not to punish them. The way to prevent the behavior is to meet that the underlying is. need. Yeah. And it's the same conversation with policing. If you are having huge chunks of huge like groups of people in society that are breaking laws, acting out, doing things that we deem to be like unacceptable, unsafe, for the vast majority of them, there is an underlying need that needs to be met. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that without police, all hell will break loose, that's not true. There's not even, as far as I know, from, from what we've seen, like communities that are over-policed are not safer. They're more dangerous. Like putting more police out there does not keep people safe. Policing and punitive measures is not the answer to creating a safe society. That's right. not how it works. What you need to do is look at the underlying needs that people have and meet them there. And I just think that we're not used to thinking like that. Like everything about the way we understand law and order is based on punishment. You do something bad, you go to prison. 
the rest of us, we don't want to go to prison. So we're not going to do anything bad. But that's just that's just not really the truth about humans or about safety, about police. And like we're being pushed to think about things in a way that's, that's no longer about white. It's like it's not the way white dominant culture has trained us to think. Yeah. And that's what's so scary is it's extremely unknown. We've never done it in the history of our country. But like we're realizing now we are being forced to realize that we have to now, like we have to start to think about it differently. But I think what you're describing, Esther, is the basic concept of defunding the police, right? Like like to reallocate resources to fund what you're describing is defunding the police. So I'm noticing Mark, you know, Moreno, you know, is, is you know, watching. Shout out to Mark. Um, and he's saying like, hey, like, I don't you know, feel entirely comfortable with that, which is understandable. But what you're describing, that reallocation of funds and the way that we we shift our priorities is essentially what the defund police movement is kind of pushing for. Am I understanding that correctly? I think you are, but I think the I think that people who advocate for abolition, I think the problem that they see with that is defunding the police is important. It's it's important and allocating those funds elsewhere is important, but the police itself they like the police in and of itself as a system still has a problem. And I think that people who advocate for abolition are saying, as long as that system is still in existence, yeah, it was a threat. Because like, what their, you know, the history, what they were founded on, everything that they've been about since the since they ever came into existence was about essentially um I can't remember the words Adrian used earlier, but it's basically about just policing poor black communities. That's that's what we've done. And you can't, I think like, I think as a, as a people, as a country, as a whole, we don't think enough about like how something, what something was founded on just echoes through it, through it forever. Like you think like it's new people, new, it's a new generation, like it would go away, but it doesn't. Like those ideals, those things that was founded on are still present. And in order to get rid of them, I think a lot of people are arguing you have to get rid of it entirely and re replace it with something else that none of us know what it would look like because we've never had to think about it before. Yeah. I mean, I really like the idea of, you know, like a couple of departments, Camden was mentioned in the comments earlier. I'm not really sure who did, who mentioned that, but like, I like the idea of them kind of like firing everybody, laying off the entire force and then rehiring. But I always think like, you could just rehire the same people. Oh, that was Mark. Right. Uh, yeah, I feel like you could just rehire like the same bad cops or their yeah. friends and like, it doesn't make a, a big difference. Um, shout out to Mark for engaging. I've always just kind of like felt like, you know, I mean, in the last, always in the last like two weeks <laughs> about this, like I, I've kind of like, I don't know what stops people from re just rehiring bad cops. But Garrison, if you were in charge of hiring police officers, wouldn't you hire different cops? I mean, if someone, I mean, if we said like, look, Garrison Hayes is now in charge of the Berrien Springs police uh, because this reason, because he values not only safety, but justice and equity and making sure that those people would hire better people. Like that's just people calling for the abolishment of something aren't going to be like, all right, that chief, we're going to bring them back and they're going to hire the, I think a culture changes at administration changes. Um, I mean, I think that's why some of that would work at least better in that sense where it's like, yeah, we're not going to allow this person to come back in and hire. We're going to bring this person in that's going to care about 
different things. And I feel like Esther's got to, I'm going to push back on you face. So go ahead. No, that's good. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm only saying, I, I don't think it's about, even if you hire different people, I just think the problem is deeper than that. Like, it's not like we've had the same co exact cops and uniforms for the past hundred years, but we've had the exact same problems. And I, I, I don't think it's necessarily just about like the individuals that- Didn't you Garrison say, get rid of it though? And then make a new one. That's what yeah. I. That's what I was thinking. I guess I. I guess maybe I'm misunderstanding. But to me, the idea of like okay, firing everybody and then hiring some, and then just like hiring a bunch of new people, I, I don't think that that's a solution because I still don't think it gets to the underlying issues within the system itself. Like you're getting rid of people. But wouldn't you create a new system there too? That's that's what I was. I that's my thought process. It would be like we're tearing down and we're creating an entire, we're not calling it police, we're calling it public safety. Yeah. And we're, this is our, we have new mission, we have new bylaws, we're, we're enforcing different laws different ways, we're uh, taking different approaches. Um, the, the, yeah, the, that does get a little tricky though, because you know, homicides, robberies, assaults, they take place. You can fire everybody and then bad things are still going to happen, even if it's not at a higher rate or a lesser rate, it's still going to happen. So. You still want public safety because you want, you know, victims of those crimes to be able to find justice. But that's what I was thinking. I was thinking when you when you fire, you now create a new system mm -hmm. in that city that says, look, we're going to we're going to take a different approach to absolutely everything. Um, but but but, you know, like unions still exist and qualified immunity still exists. And like those things prevent, I mean, you know, I, I think it was shared in our, in our group chat about the show, you know, there's an episode of, I think the daily where they talk about the things that prevent change in policing mm -hmm. and unions are a huge part of the problem. While we as progressive people value unions in other industries, they're really, really damaging and detrimental within, you know, the police, policing industry and like so so it's 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 hard to imagine a a scenario where you hire or you fire and rehire and you aren't encumbered like, like you aren't held up by the fact that unions and qualified immunity and other things that are that make policing bad as a as an as a whole yeah. those things exist my friend today told me I, that I think cities cities don't have to sign those contracts though. Like that's a big part of it. The unions they present a contract and the city says okay, and then all of a sudden it's like you got this terrible contract. This is union signed. Sorry to cut you off, Jordan. Go ahead. No, you're good. But to just kind of jump off of what you were saying, Garrison, I feel like that's why it might be so essential to really just start clean, start fresh, because. If we essentially say let's end police, then I would hope the laws and the, I guess, ways police avoid justice go with it too. Policing ends and we just bring in something totally new. And it was interesting reading a, an article by NBC News, and I'm, I'm just going to quote it. And it says, people say, what about sexual violence and what about domestic violence? The people who are advocating defund police and abolish police are, for the most part, black women, girls, trans, and gender non-conforming people. Many of us are survivors of all those forms of violence. We are not proposing to abandon our communities to violence. We are naming policing as a form of violence that we are all experiencing. So I think that's very interesting because 
you know, again, it all speaks to that fear of, you know, if we remove police, then the world will just be in utter chaos. I've seen some of those statuses too. And um, I just think it's important for us to remember that that's actually not necessarily the case. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. I was just. Yeah, it's all good. No, I think that's good. Um, and also, shout out. I mean, lots of great comments. So, shout out to y'all for, for jumping in and engaging. And maybe we'll pull some more of those out. Um, I think. I definitely resonate with where the, the direction the conversation going from the standpoint of um, I think it's really important in this moment for us to embrace and do a lot of things in this country that we've never done. Right. Um, because, you know, I mean, they can't wait is cool. And I think it should be immediately adopted because I mean, like right now and tomorrow, we're still going to have police departments. Like that's just kind of the reality. And so, yeah, adopting measures that can make things better or them to operate better in the time being right now, I think is cool and they should do it. Um, but Michelle Alexander, who like I'm a disciple of, she released the New York Times uh, opinion article um, yesterday, I believe it was, and it was entitled America, This Is Your Chance. And I just want to read like a quick snippet from that because I think she really framed um, this mm -hmm. moment perfectly it, from the standpoint of America needing to wrestle with what we have created up until this point. I mean, she says in there, we must face our racial history and our racial present. And I think that's a lot of what we've been talking about here. We cannot solve a problem we don't understand. Donald Trump would not be the president and George Floyd would not be dead if after the civil war, our nation had committed itself to reparations, reconciliation and atonement for the land and people that colonizers stole sold and plundered. Instead, white people who enslaved blacks were granted reparations for their loss of property, meaning persons, while formerly enslaved blacks were given nothing, not even the 40 acres and a mule they were promised. Ever since our nation has been trapped in a cycle of intermittent racial progress. So I think we're talking right now about, well, how can we make progress? But the other side of that is that that's followed by fierce backlash and the emergence of new and improved systems that end up just continuing racial and social control. These cycles have been punctuated by various movements, uprisings and riots, but one thing has remained constant. A majority of whites persistently deny the scale and severity of racial injustice that people of color endure. And so, I mean, I think that's probably even more ambitious, but it starts there, uh, in my opinion. Um, of course, it starts with the, just an overall commitment to the work of anti-racism which then from top to bottom, you're evaluating policies and systems that don't fit that frame yeah. and you're wiping them out and you're replacing them with anti-racist policies and systems. And that's obviously a long-term solution and commitment. But you even think about our election. I mean, we're juxtaposing, and we're talking about on this issue in particular, we're juxtaposing Donald Trump, who I don't need to go through his criminal justice history and just how racially charged his opinions are on everything, and in particular, the criminalization of black bodies. But on the flip side, you have Joe Biden, who is running away from a legacy of empowering local police departments to lock black and brown people up. I mean, we lived through from the 70s, like up until like fairly recently, we've had senators, House of Representatives, governors, local mayors, jumping over themselves to look tougher on crime than the other you know and that's been a bipartisan effort and so 
we're so far down the line, so many different pieces of legislation that have embedded that within not even just the culture of policing, but just the culture of the control of black and brown bodies and other persons of color in this country that to try to on the fly reorder that just it's just not going to work because it, because it, it's so the wheels have been turning in that direction for so long that you have to you have to blow up the car you know it's not even enough to get a flat tire you just got to blow up the car and start from scratch and so um that's obviously i think scary for elected officials because you know that puts you in a hot, hot that, that puts you in a hot seat but i mean that's what comes with the job. And, and we're at a time where it's not enough to just kick the can down the road, but we need strong transformative change and policies to take place. And, um, you know, I, I think starting small is okay, but I mean, we think that we need to think bigger and there needs to be a clear roadmap to how we get there for sure. I wanted to, to kind of respond to Javan's uh, question where she asked even during the fire and rehire period, what should be done in the interim? Creating a new system will take time and then hiring the right people will take more time. And I think underneath it all, Javan, she, she is, she is uh, opening the conversation to a lot of other deeper concerns that we have seen already with uh, 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 the power that police unions have or the, the sense of entitlement that many white Americans feel they have in the absence of police. We've also seen, uh, and I, I was reading the book from you know the end of policing, which I think kind of aligns with what you were referring to Nixon. And they talked about during the prohibition era where there were so many things that were deemed illegal, even things like gambling that were deemed illegal and through the 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 laws that were placed so many arrests followed and so many violence followed to things that uh resulted in them becoming legal like alcohol eventually became legal and i think part of the the problem that we're having is we also need to recognize that some of the laws that we've placed to be legal or illegal also correlate to the conversation of policing and what happens when there is something like the war on drugs still taking place while we're attempting to reform policing or mass incarceration, is that still taking place while we're attempting to reform policing? And what, what does all of that look like while we're trying to fire and rehire people? And I think that is what makes this conversation feel a little intimidating is because there are so many moving pieces that are affecting the criminal justice and how um, ineffective it is at making people feel safe. Because there, there are so many things that are connected. And, and it's like if we pull one out, we have to pull all the other things at the same time. I don't really know how else we could look at it. Yeah, I think one way to start talk, talk about this is we can defund the police personally by not putting them in all of our schools. Um, we've seen that that hasn't necessarily given a positive conversation um, for a lot of our community. Stop calling the cops. 
Um, I mean, if the cops don't have calls to go on, they're they're not working. Like that's just they're not going to keep putting cops on our streets if we're. And so, like, I think like white people have a have a real like duty on their shoulders to ensure that people stop getting the cops called on them for no reason. We talked about this last week, and we kind of joke about it, but these are like real things that you could do. I've been sharing them on some of my social media. There's lots of things. If your life isn't in danger, you should never dial 911. Um, but yeah, like uh, as I was looking at some of the Camden stuff, as as they were kind of doing it, they were as they were putting their new force together, they did end up firing everyone, but they were pretty ready to kind of put into place um, some of their new forces pretty immediately, pretty swiftly. Um, it says they they have they adopted a, a it's it's what they called an eighteen or nineteen page policy of you know they don't use force force is a last option for them that's the one thing their gun is not a um, conversation starter it is not a you're you're here in this situation and not cooperating so I'm going to use my gun on you it is a tactic of last resort it is a tactic of and you know the the fear conversation plays in um, I'll keep pushing that fourth. Fourth Amendment is what protects police. If you fear for your life, you're able to pull the trigger because of whatever reason. But the Camden police said, nope, we are not allowing that to be part of our conversation. And as I read a little bit more, it sounds like they even ended up putting more cops on the streets because they had more cops that were literally required to host community events, plan and host community events where people were coming to barbecue and and cookouts and things that they wanted to do whether it was in their home neighborhood or you know work with you know different clubs in the community to kind of say hey we're as we do this you kind of have to create a new culture that says we're going to engage in this conversation um sorry if i've shifted us to like a little deeper into the conversation but i think when we talk about really big police forces, we have to talk about what co what could cops do to give themselves better rapport in some of their communities. Um, and I and I honestly believe, you know, cops having information to say what's going on in my community that I could show up to. You know, what basketball games are going on at the YMCA? What churches are having community events? What you know, um, boys and girls clubs are being hosted right now? What what things are going on? of the parks or any families having family reunions that I could just stop in on and just be someone of a presence of positivity. Because right now, um, cops show up for crime and that's it. And if, if it's really protect and serve, where does serve come into that? Um, we, we can say we're not trained for this, so we don't know how to do things. But it's like, you don't have to be trained to be a nice person to someone. And I'll tell you right now, if you saw this young man at a, at a basketball game last week and he gave you a high five, you're gonna have a much different perspective when you see him in the streets the next week doing something that you may not agree with as a police officer. You might be willing to have a more proper de-escalation tactic there as opposed to just seeing them as a crime. And um, I think we really start, we really have to hold cops a little more accountable to some of that to say, hey, you need to serve us as much as you try to protect us. Um, and you need to use lethal love as much as you're trying to use this lethal force on every force on everybody. Um, that's like an important conversation to start like holding holding police accountable to, even though I do believe in some of the radical measures. I think we also have to think right now in terms of what we can encourage cops to kind of be doing um, to better engage uh, with our communities.
Well, that, that boy said lethal love. You sound like a pastor, man. Mercy. <laughs> no, lethal love. Mm, okay. <laughs> now, I, now I hear what you saying. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just I just thought that was kind of that was kind of cute. But um, shut up. No, I, <laughs> no, I think I I feel it. I guess I don't know. Maybe just my 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 um experience is obviously different. I don't know, man. I'm not, I don't know if I'm trying to like I said. I've seen the videos with the kids hooping with the officers and stuff like that. Um, I'm I'm good on it, Chief. Like you know, I don't need to play horse with you. I don't need to you know cross you up and like. First of all, you out here with your uniform. You don't you don't have game. Like just go, go you know, go to the department, bro. Just like you know, we're we're good over here. You know what I mean? I. And I mean, I think if they're if they want to have community events and stuff, and people want to show up, I mean, that's cool. Like that's fine. I'll take that over, you know, tear gassing peaceful protesters for sure. But like, I just don't, I don't know that you know. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. I I guess. So the whole community policing thing, and we talked about that earlier, and you actually made a good point about that, Logan. It's just kind of, I don't know, man. People. It's idealistic for sure. Yeah, for sure. Oh. The community policing thing, I think, would be so helpful for urban communities. But I worry, like, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. So I know in Nashville, that could work. But you go out into surrounding counties between, you know, Memphis, Nashville, and Chattanooga. And what are those communities, what are those communities' rules on policing? What are their ideas? And I think that like, how do we in, ensure, like a huge question for me is how do we ensure that we are adopting, you know, statewide, because um, there are some balance of power issues, you know, but like with a, with a federal perspective, but statewide, how do we ensure that we are creating anti-racist policing and not actually making it worse? Like, you know, I mean, and I say that and I, I totally like, I think the defunding thing, another comment I was going to make is that the defunding idea, I think that one way we could look at it is actually that the, that there's a lot of positive there that we're sending money into areas that we've actually neglected as a society. And I think like, when we look at like, even housing, the way that we treat low income communities, the way that there's not lighting out there. Like, I mean, basic stuff, like at night, there's basic stuff that just kind of sets us up for unsafe communities that have some major, like, you know, food deserts, like all sorts of stuff that we're just tackling in terms of trying to create a more equitable society. Um, and I think the defunding a lot of a militarized police um, system allows us to throw those resources into other areas that kind of ensure that at least in our big cities that that you know some of these some of these racist um, systems can be broken down and and quality programs can be raised up. I think that um, that ties to kind of what you were saying earlier, Adrian. That's a good point is that like defunding and all of that also has to be tied with like decriminalizing things. Yeah. Like we have to redefine our definition of crime and say like, okay, like drug offenses and that kind of thing. Like, is that, are we still going to say like that's a crime issue or are we going to change that into like, okay, you actually need help. Like, I think like all of this stuff has to happen 
like what you were saying, like it has to happen simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Like it, it doesn't work to just defund or reform or, or anything like that. If like all these other ways that things are inequitable are still happening. Right. And that and that's like how you shrink what cops are responsible for. Like if you're only calling cops like because like someone's life is in danger, like or, you know, something violent is happening and all these other issues. It's like there's a there's a completely different avenue for this. Like we don't have to involve them at all. Then I don't really see personally, I don't think I don't really see the need to like increase cop presence and community policing and emphasis there. I honestly think like you can have less of them. Like I I, I feel like the vibe I get from a lot of communities that are over-policed right now is like, we, like I, we actually want to see less of you guys. Like more of you guys does not make us feel safer. Like we want to see less of you. We want less police presence and more presence of the services that we actually need. Like decriminalize homelessness. Like why are we, like why are things, like things are out of people's control, yeah. landing them in situations with cops in the criminal justice system. Like it, there's yeah. so many, things that we could handle differently. And then like, we we just don't need as many of them. We don't need them as much and their presence doesn't have to be as dominant and terrifying. Yeah, and also deprivatizing the prison system because mm -hmm. I think that's a big reason for the over-criminalization of all these different acts and things of conduct to, to fill those beds because it's profitable. And you know, whenever money gets involved, you know, things start to get murky. The other thing, talking about how things need to happen simultaneously, I think is a really good point. And to build on that, um, we have to have a serious question in America and the people ain't going to like this, but what are we doing about these guns? We, mm -hmm. we just got, we, we got a lot of people, got a lot of guns. I think it was Nikolai that mentioned something like that earlier. You know, you got these little, you know, these Bundy militias out here that are, you know, really ready to pop off at any moment. And, you know, so I, I, to me, if, if we, I think abolishing the police or limiting, you know, the amount of force, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of countries that, you know, the police don't have weapons, you know, but that of course is because citizens don't have weapons and that's the only way that that works, you know? And, and so, um, that's going to be tough for, for a lot of, you know, two a Americans and all that good stuff. And at the very least, these semi-automatic rifles and these, you know, this huge like military grade machinery that gets out there. Um, we, we have to have a conversation about what we're doing with that. Or, you know, if, if that's not a part of the conversation, then things could get real iffy in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I have a couple of thoughts. It's like, you know, I think a lot of what, you know, what you're talking about, Esther, in your last comment about how, you know, their presence in communities is often like, you know, like, yo, we actually don't want you or need you here is because a lot of them wield like illegitimate power and that illegitimate power, they like, I, and I have a I have a real issue with the way that a lot of these conversations are being had amongst pastors, amongst people who are more socially conservative. They act as though the 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 disrespect that police are receiving is somehow unwarranted. But you have to understand that there are a lot of disrespectful police officers yeah. who, who use their power disrespectfully and therefore do not deserve the respect right. of the communities. And, and until we kind of like allow that to be at least a part of the conversation, 
I don't think we'll ever understand why there have been such serious pushes for, you know, for police forces to be defund, defunded and, and specifically for them to be demilitarized, as you were saying, Nixon. I mean, like like in the 2A conversation, you know, the government is supposed to hold a monopoly on violence. They're supposed to be the only group of people who can legally enact violence and, uh, on the citizens and in and, and the world. That's what the police are there for. We can kill you if we de- if we deem it appropriate, because that's our trusted duty is to have lethal for uh, the permission to to use lethal force. But when you have uh, you know citizens who are walking around with like military grade weapons of their own, of course you're going to see an increase in the militarization of those who are supposed to have a monopoly on violence. So until you address, as you're, as you're accurately bringing it up, Nixon, until you address the 2A issue, the, the gun issue in America, you are going to see this really vicious cycle. Now, that is somewhat separate than, from the history of how the police you know, became militarized, but I do think it is a, a relevant modern issue that we have to process is like the more guns that are out there, the bigger the guns the police officers are going to feel as though they need. Yeah. Um, to to make a long comment longer, you know, we just talked about this, you know, active shooter situation here in our apartment building. And one thing that I was like blown away over was the fact that like there's a lady, just to give a brief synopsis, there's a lady in her you know, apartment shooting in every direction. They came and checked our apartment for holes in the walls and in the ceilings because she was shooting all around. And then when the cops came in and tried to get into her apartment, she started like letting loose on them with the gun, like shooting at them. And so like they fall back, but they ended up rolling in a tank, like literally a tank with snipers. And then they sent in literally dozens of officers with weapons that I was like, I must be in Iraq. Like they were literally in camo. Like, I'm not kidding you. They were in camo no. at my apartment building with these huge weapons. And I'm thinking to myself, there's it is no way that this lady has what it takes to take all 48 of y'all out. Like there, there's just no way. All of y'all have like these automatic weapons ready to go, like riot gear on, like it's crazy. Yeah. And yeah. And it just like brought to my mind how important it is for us to consider the fact that like this stuff is not necessary. I, I don't care what you say, they should not have all of that stuff. And it actually makes the situation a little bit more tense, which makes it more dangerous mm-hmm. and, 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 and creates that cycle of violence um, that's almost inevitable at that point. Uh, Next, I wanted to, to make one comment off of what you were saying, you know, about how certain guns or guns in general aren't really needed. Um, And I think what really frightened me in the past few weeks and seeing the protests and the riots is to see how closely connected um, uh, white nationalists and white supremacists or alt-rights, how closely intertwined they are with policing, where we saw right-wing militia groups out there with the cops helping them against the protesters, or we saw um, uh, military weapon weaponized uh, officers 
Some of them didn't even have badges, which made it seem as though were those just ordinary citizens that were being equipped. And what what is that connection looking like? Or we're we're reading articles that are being told that by the FBI telling us that there are many alt-right alt-right and white supremacists who have infiltrated the police force. And that article was made in 2006. So we have no idea how connected white nationalism and supremacy actually looks like right now in 2020. And so when we see videos on Twitter of this white guy living in the South saying that the moment you remove police officers, you're not going to know what's going to hit you because me and my boys, we've got our guns ready. That sends a terrifying chill down my spine because I don't want to know what that looks like when you have these weaponized alt-right wing individuals who feel that it is now their obligation to oppose justice on the country. Another perfect example we saw in Buffalo, which Jordan, as you know, is like right in our backyard, bro, where we saw those officers who were fired from their job. And as they're leaving court, the entire police force is outside applauding them. So when we are looking at this situation of, you know, it is a few bad apples, it's deeper than that. It it is it is much muchly rooted in our society and how um, white Americans, how white supremacists, how the military, how they are all connected with police and whiteness. And I think the it, it's almost as if to remove the, the the police is almost like we're still fighting a symptom of a much deeper problem here. And that I think is what's terrifying because I don't, it's hard to know what police reform or, or defunding police is gonna look like when you've got charged up right-wing militia groups who are connected to the current police force wanting to fight against that. Yeah. Go ahead, no, go ahead, sir. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm just going to say, I think like when talking about the armed white supremacists that are threatening to take the place of cops, I think guns definitely a large part of the problem, but also just like this, like they're, they're definitely acting out of a sense of entitlement, knowing like they won't be held responsible. Like what they're talking about doing is illegal. Like you're, you're not allowed to do that. Like you're not allowed to just go out and like handle things yourselves, but they're not afraid to say it because they clearly understand they won't be held accountable for it. And I think that's like, I, I just think that that's like a whole other conversation that needs to be had of like, okay, you have these communities, people who have been heavily, heavily policed this entire time, and we're walking on eggshells all the time because we know no matter what we do, something ter terrible could happen. Right. And you have other people that are like, I know no matter what I do, I'm backed by this system mm -hmm. and I can do whatever I want. I don't know. I don't know what you do about that, honestly, but I think that's like, that's part of the issue. Like, it's not just that they're armed because you could have armed people, but if they know like, well, I mean, I can still be held accountable by the law, then they're they're not just gonna go out and be like, I'm gonna go crazy, I'm gonna handle this myself because they they would they would have the same thought process as other people of like, oh, I, I can't just do that. Um, I also wanna say super quick, what you were saying, Garrison, about that whole situation in your apartment with that woman. And I don't know if they ever found out if it was something to do with like mental health, like what was going on with the woman in the unit. It, it, was. Was. Yeah, it was. 
I think it just also makes me think about something I said to Adrian the other day, which is like, there's a, there's a problem with cops and the way that they're trained, like similar to like people in the military of this idea of like us versus them. Like when they talk about protect and serve, they're, they're only talking about protecting and serving law abiding citizens. As soon as you commit a crime, you're no longer on their protect and serve thing. Like now you're an enemy yeah. of them. And that's why they yeah. gone that way. That's why they're like, we need to come in with everything that we've got and take this person out. I think there, I, there needs to be a shift in that of like, okay, even when somebody commits a crime, we still need to be thinking about what do we do? How do we handle this situation that works out the best for everybody, that person included? Like it doesn't have to go straight from, all right, you did something, now we have to handle this and take you out and you're an enemy. Like you're still a citizen. I'm still obligated to protect and serve you. How do I respond to this in a way that serves you and all the other people involved in the situation? Yeah. It's true. I mean, I think it's really interesting within this conversation. I mean, I've, I've advocated for a while that I think cops need an actual laws written for them to hold them accountable because right now they kind of exist under our laws. And so if a cop shoots someone, we have to decide if they should be tried for murder the same way I would be tried. And in reality is um, that's not how it works. Um, they, that it's hard to convict a cop of that. But like, I think when we really start to talk about the system, I think all of the cases that we've been seeing go national have, have proven that the system has not only been broken, but it is currently broken. Ahmaud Arbery was a, was a community police murder that was covered up by a police system, mm -hmm. um, by attorneys. Uh, Breonna Taylor was a detective situation where they sent cops to the wrong location and then murdered her in her own home trying to sleep. I mean, George Floyd was a protocol situation where a police officer overused his own physical power and then murdered a man in the streets. We had a guy, Tony McDade, who was a trans black man murdered in Jacksonville, Florida, who was um, unarmed. We had Eric Salgado, who's a local, um, not to mention another um, one that happened here, but Eric Salgado was with his girlfriend in a car, what they suspected to be theft from looting last week. And so uh, the, the highway patrol, thought him to be armed. No guns were found. They yes. shired, uh, four, shot 40 bullets at his car. I mean, these aren't just like, oh, this was a, a bad situation here. But this is like national news that we're seeing because of social media and video cams and body cams. We're saying like, no, 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 this isn't just like a weird situation here. This is like every level of police is saying like, we suck at this on a, on a huge overarching level and it's happening. Um, I mean, there was even a situation with, with a white guy that someone was, I saw on Twitter, they were trying to get news where he was an unarmed guy. I mean, this is like a clear systemic issue where if they're not firing for it, they're covering up for it. And we're having to fight just to say this guy murdered someone or this guy did their job wrong. They're saying, because otherwise the union would just say, oh, let's just like put him on leave for a little bit and then we'll move forward and it'll be fine. Like... I don't understand how we can keep advocating and say, ah, oh, no worries, we won't, um, we won't address this problem and start to say this needs to be kind of torn down and re rethought. Yeah, just, just jumping in real quick and great thoughts there, Logan. I wanted to jump off of what uh, something that Adrian was talking about in regards to um, the white supremacist infiltration into police departments. It's interesting. I, I just finished... Um, I've been meaning to watch the Netflix miniseries Who Killed Malcolm X for the longest, and I actually finished it last night. Um, 
it probably could have been two episodes shorter, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. But, uh, but it was a lot of good information. No, no shade for them, but shout out to Abdur Rahman Muhammad, who they were following. He was the gentleman who really just made it his personal business to find out the truth about the crime. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but he ultimately does end up doing so. But one of the things that really kind of hit me was like, you know, it, well, it is a little interesting that it was kind of an open secret within the the Nation of Islam community who did it. And, and that's an interesting part of the story. But the more interesting thing is going back to even the investigation. And I put an investigation in quotes mm-hmm. around the murder of Malcolm X was just how flippant it was handled by the NYPD. And then they had a special group called BOSS, the Bureau of Special Services, in which they were monitoring Malcolm and other members of the Nation of Islam, along with the FBI. You know, the FBI, you know, it's well chronicled that they were following Malcolm and Martin Luther King Jr. Actually, the most recorded person was Elijah Muhammad, who was the, you know, the founding prophetic voice of the Nation of Islam movement. And just a day on a daily basis, just the surveillance and the wiretapping. And um, there's almost just like this nonchalantness with how, I mean, that's all well known. And, and none of that was legal. Like none, none of what they were doing for that whole period of time was legal at all. Um, and of course, you have folks, you know, you know, who are white supremacists in the midst of that and um, are obviously wanting to, um, to snuff out these voices and and it really hit me is that in one part of the show they showed a like 1983 like it is episode uh, which is a, a powerful program that my dad used to force me to watch but as i've gotten older i've really appreciated it and um in this 1983 episode they bring back an eyewitness of the crime to the autobahn theater well first of all one of the first things that really hit me was that there was a dance class scheduled later in the day that Malcolm X was killed and it, and they still had it. They just like cleaned everything up and still had the class, which is just like, I mean, think about that. Like Malcolm X is killed in a location and the thing that was ready, that was scheduled to happen later that night still happened. R- ridiculous. Then beyond that in 1983, they went into the Autobahn, you know, ballroom room where it occurred and they actually found in the basement of the Autobahn ballroom the podium that Malcolm X was was using that day, just in the basement of the Autobahn, like thrown like a piece of trash somewhere. You know what I mean? And it's like it hadn't even been collected by local law enforcement to be examined or anything like that. They just picked, you know, these two folks along with the one person who confessed that clearly had nothing to do with it. And just lock them up, you know, because that's just, I mean, you know, grab the nearest black dudes. Oh, they're in the nation. All right, cool. Lock them up. And that's it. And this is one of the you ask any black person in America now, that's probably one of our five most important voices more and more contemporary historically. And his death was just like, uh, you know, some black dudes killed him. It is what it is, whatever. And so that just for I was just kind of sitting there watching it. It was just like. There's this one dude who like just had a passion to figure it out like years, decades later. And he did way more work than the three, these three different levels of law enforcement did to figure out what happened. And even when those groups did find out what happened, they just buried it. And so, yeah, abolish the police. I'm done with them. (laughs) 
I just came to that conclusion. I'm done. One of those agencies, you know, are like federal level, right? Like, I mean, it's insane to think about the resources that they have, the yep. options that they have, the just, I mean, they could have tackled that so much more heavily. And I, one thing that I want to jump in here and say is that hit dogs don't holler. Um, I mean, hit dogs holler. And I feel like with this situation with the police, we're seeing so many white supremacists. You don't see black people getting on their social media accounts talking about, yeah, if you abolish the police, it's going to be a problem. Right. Um, it is right. white supremacists who are speaking up. And I think that that's because, you know, we're threatening their system. We're threatening mm -hmm. the thing that they have ingrained their power into. Nobody retaliates like that if you're not threatening them. And honestly, I hadn't even... When I first saw the video, I saw the video of the country guy today talking about um, how he was going to retaliate. You have no idea how many guns we have and all this stuff. And at first I was like, man, that's ugly. But then I had to realize that he's reacting that way because he has a vested interest in the police perpetuating and acting in the way that it does in current day America. And I think that we have actually come up on one of the most important reform points in our entire society, which is that the police needs to be defunded, abolished, reformed, however it works, however we decide to go about it collectively, it needs to be changed um, drastically. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, and to that point, kind of bringing those two points together, you know, uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad talks about how, how the way the police started, of course, was with the slave catchers. But one interesting detail is that all white people, uh, all white adults were automatically required to be a part of this patrol walk. It's just like a, it's an assumption. It gave kind of carte blanche um, authority to all white people to police black people. Um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad happens to be Elijah Muhammad's grandson, by the way, uh, which I thought was very interesting. But I think you see that coming out, even if they don't know that history, Travis and Gregory McMichael act upon that history when they seek to police Ahmaud Arbery. This gentleman talking about, I'm going to get my guns out. He acts upon that history, even if he doesn't know it. He acts yeah. upon the coding when he makes these statements about how he's going to handle essentially black people, people of color is what he's implying there, you know? And he even calls himself, and, and he talks about his colleagues as rednecks. So he's talking about non-rednecks, non-white people. And so it, it's, it's just interesting that the police have this interesting history that is ultimately wrapped into our situation, whether we know it or not. That's very good. That is our discussion for today. I honestly personally feel like uh, the police should just be destroyed entirely and we build something new from the ashes personally. You know, that's just destroyed. Destroyed is not the language. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, you know, the, 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 to close, you know, the, the one thing I will say is that, you know, you have uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
Not that, that I was just I was giving I was making sure it was clear that you were speaking for yourself. But go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, no, of course I don't want to destroy anything. You know, if we can really get to the root of what policing what policing is, what it started as, say this is not what we should be doing, and try to reform it into something that has a better origin story, something that is purposefully made to help people and not to always be on the attack and and and, and to be a violent force and i think we can we can get somewhere personally and, and you know i remember you know mike and i we went and we saw bad boys um i remember watching die hard i remember watching end of watch great movies with terrible cops terrible cops and honestly i mean it just i think it shows a culture of again we're thinking cops should be going in and blasting. I mean, they shoot people every movie, but besides the point. So that's our show, Affirmative Interaction. And Garrison, yes. I, I just want to say, you know, I don't, Sherry has kind of commented something here. And, and I, I know we don't have time to really get into all the details. It's actually, it can't even fit onto the screen. But <laughs> I recognize that, you know, Sherry, it sounds like you've really experienced some trauma. And on a serious level, I'm sorry for the trauma that you've experienced. And and we definitely want to hold each other accountable. We, you know, as we talk about the police, that's an institution. It's the government. And there, there are ways for us to hold our government and our, our public institutions accountable, even if we can't fully, you know, protect uh, each other from the interpersonal damage that that sin and 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 unfortunately we end up inflicting on each other. Like I said, we can't get into all the details of that comment because it's 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 long and it's a lot of a lot to dive into. But I just want to acknowledge your trauma to tell you that I'm I'm sorry on behalf of this group. You know, we're sorry for what you've been through, and we definitely hope to to produce a better world than the one that that you're describing yourself living in. And I definitely think that there are some things that you've touched on, Sherry, that we can probably talk, touch on a, on a different episode. Um, a lot of discussions on. Um, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault and things like that. I think we have a lot to discuss in terms of how we are as a black community working towards a healthier place, um, which is some of the stuff that you've mentioned as well. So we can probably get to that in a different episode. Yeah, that's true. Thank you guys so much for acknowledging her comment. And uh, Sherry, thank you for spending your time with us. And thank you to everyone for spending your time with us on Affirmative Interaction. We're gonna do our PMI super quick as per tradition. Please keep it concise. Um, we're gonna start with uh, Michael. Oh, okay, right off the gate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I wanted to, um, and let me put the link in the, um, the show chat. So the other day I was having a conversation um, with the goat Noah Nixon, she's the greatest. Um, and you know, you know, she's five years old, and everything's happening in our society and whatnot. And so, you know, she's also very savvy on the phone and can probably use an iPhone better than her mom and I. And so, she saw a few posts about what's happening, you know, recently. And um, she asked me a question that I wasn't prepared to answer. I'm not going to get you know super in depth or too sappy, but the question she did ask me, and I believe it may be a question that other parents are being asked, and so I want to provide a resource. The question she asked me was, um, you know, Daddy, uh, why did that man kill George Floyd? He seemed like such a nice man. 
And um, yeah, that was that was a tough moment. I kind of gulped and I won't get into the whole conversation, but I and, you know, she's five. We talked back and forth about it a little bit. And then, you know, she said something about The Incredibles, too. And I just, you know, I went with that, you know, so but it, it sort of comes back around. But she made this interesting connection around, you know, in The Incredibles, too. Actually, if some of you have seen it, there's a law that makes superheroes illegal. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how, well, Daddy, that kind of sounds like what we were talking about with what happened with Mr. Floyd. And I was like, well, yeah. And in some ways, it can feel that way as a black person that, um, you know, your existence has been made illegal. And so, yeah, that I'll, I'll, I'll pause there because it was it was a little deep. But um, this is a really good resource. Um, it's a book that I bought recently. It's called Something Happened in Our Town. Um, it's a children's guide to talk about racial injustice. There's also some really good uh, definitions and terms in here um, to help navigate through the topic. Um, I put a link in the show notes. It's backordered right now, so it may take a little bit to ship, um, but it's a, it's a really good resource. I know Ibram X. Kendi's coming out with the children's resource too, which I highly recommend. I'll try to drop that in the comments before we end as well. But uh, yeah, shout out to parents, it's particularly parents of black children. It's a tough time right now. And uh, you know, th- those talks, we got to have them though. So we're here to support however we can. Very good. Thank you so much, Mike. And I also add that Noah is a very smart kid because her being able to make those connections is amazing to me personally. Uh, Logan, do you want to share for us next, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think it's one thing we kind of forget about you know, when we think about how we intake stuff. So uh, as you all might have seen on the news, Oakland was kind of like looted pretty good a couple weekends ago. And uh, that resulted in a lot of plywood going up on buildings. And so one thing that I started to notice uh, actually as soon as Sunday of last week, so uh, about eight, eight, eight or nine days ago, that people were repurposing these plywood with um, just beautiful murals. And, and it had been black artists in Oakland that had came and brought their paint. They brought their, you know, tools to create beautiful things. And so I'm going to drop a link. It's got some more stuff in it. But just really cool to walk through the streets of Oakland where you would normally see a Chase Bank or a Wells Fargo um, or a Starbucks where these things have just been completely destroyed through the protests. You know, they've been made into something actually more beautiful and more appealing to the community um, and more supportive of the community than those uh, those big corporations were. And so I'm going to drop a link. You can also go to like uh, Oakland Art as a hashtag on Instagram. You can kind of scroll through, see some of the work these people have done. Just really cool to see, you know, Brianna, they actually have a one one area of downtown kind of near, near where like the old downtown is, where Marshawn Lynch's store and stuff is, where they have like all of the names and of victims that have been um, of police brutality throughout the years, just like painted. And, and they're just like some of them with images of the people. You know, uh, they had an image of Michael Brown there, just different. You know, there was a Trayvon Martin just... So it's just really neat to kind of see the community saying, you know what, you, we broke some windows, but we're still the community and we still are really fighting for um, injustice. And so it's uh, pretty cool to kind of walk through downtown. So if you're in Oakland, check it out or you can look at this link that I'll send. Very good. Thank you, Logan. Uh, Simone, would love to have you share for us next. Yeah, so I think the um, it's less of a specific thing but more so um, investing in black businesses has really been um, top priority this week. 
and just kind of looking, analyzing my personal life. Where am I getting my clothes from? Where am I getting my makeup from? Uh, where am I getting my books from? Where am I getting you know, my shoes from? And can I um, pour back into my own community? There have been a lot of lists that have been released that have tons of great resources for where to find black businesses online, locally, all that type of thing. But um, that's really been on my mind. Black films, just kind of like, you know, where are we here? Where are we? How can I, how can I throw my resources that way? Thank you so much. And Adrian, just, just a quick, sorry, just a quick note on that. The, the link that I did drop was to the only black owned, well, a black a bookstore owned by a black woman in Chicago. So oh, just, wow. know, if y'all order from there, you're supporting her business. So do, do that, please. Thank you. Uh, Adrian, could you share for us next, please? Yes. So I, uh, have been zooming through the book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Iram X. Kendi. Um, very, very profound book. And it has caused uh, a, a number of paradigm shifts in the way that I view how to tackle racism, um, how to be anti-racist. But it's also showed that this is not just a book for white people and how to be an ally. Um, it's, it is about people in general on how to fight against um, racism. Um, I've been touched as, as a man, as a black man, as a first generation who's come from immigrants. Um, I've loved it. Um, so I, I'm gonna keep recommending this until I'm done because I think this is a must read for, for anyone who's wanting to expand their views on how to fight against racism actively. Thank you. And uh, Garrison, please share for us what piqued your interest. Piqued my interest this week um, is this book. It's, uh, it's old, quite old, maybe what is that, 50 something years old, but it's Where Do We Go From Here by Martin Luther King Jr. It's his very last book before he was assassinated. And um, this book was written for June, 2020. It, it, it was written in 68, but it, it was written for right now. and. I've seen a lot of people quoting King who have no idea what he believed. They just know little bits and pieces of what they've been told about him. And this book unequivocally debunks all of your docile assumptions about King. You must read it before you ever quote him again. Where do we go from here? Thank you. And Esther, please share what Peter interests this week. Yeah, similar to um, Simone, I don't, this isn't linkable. I've been reading all the same books that I've already done as done it for a PMI. But um, I did have the opportunity to be a part of something really cool earlier this week that really got me thinking. Um, I was part of like, a, we, uh, I participated in a car protest where we like drove around at 6 a.m. and we're like honking our horns and we decorated our cars and we drove to the mayor's house and just made a bunch of noise. But the cool thing about it was that um, we got to take the protest from like the downtown area of Indianapolis and drive through like, we were driving through like rich white neighborhoods essentially. And it just got me thinking about um, like how important it is to like take the fight to people because there's a lot of people that are just like engaging with it, watching it on the news, but like it's not being brought to them, but they're, they have a lot of resources and a lot of power and say and influence. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it's something that people can can think more about of like, how can we start to take what's happening to people and like really force other people to engage in this direct directly? Um, yeah. 
Perfect. And to close, um, what piqued my interest this week is Hassan Minaj is Patriot Act episode on broken policing, which is very good. I think it's a good tool to just send to a friend, send to even a family member. There's some cussing. So send to your grandma specifically if she wants to really kind of understand what the broken policing system looks like and, you know, how we got here and what are the options that we can uh, use to move forward. And that'll be the show for today. Thank you, everyone, for commenting, for watching with us, for engaging with us in this conversation. I am Jordan Smart, your host of Infernive Interaction. And again, please uh, make sure you subscribe to our Instagram. You follow our Instagram, you subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you follow all things Affirmative Interaction. We're all black, and we have Logan. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yo, why are we still alive?